Galatians 4, verses 8 through 20, which you can find on page 6 in your bulletins. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who were by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You are observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I've wasted my efforts on you. I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for I became like you. You did me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. And even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. Where, then, is your blessing of me now? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? Those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us so that you may have zeal for them. It is fine to be zealous, provided that the purpose is good and to be so always, not just when I am with you. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I am perplexed about you. I'm looking out and I recognize we, we have some new parents in our midst here, though I'm not, no, because the baby's not here. But you're here. We love you. Congratulations. Klasse Nikite. Among our newest of, are you the newest? I can't remember if someone snuck in uh, uh, since the clock expired. Uh, but yeah, guys, uh, we love you and congratulations. Good to have you with us. Um, but forgive me for, at, where's the baby? <laughs> with my mom. All right, okay, so good. Not, she's not driving herself in circle. That's good, that's good, that's good. Um, Welcome back, those of you maybe who were uh, on a retreat, uh, on our retreat last week with us, and those of you maybe that weren't with us, um, uh, good to be back uh, together again. We had a fantastic time, a, a joy to get away, um, but also a joy to be back together again. Um, we also have a special thing coming up next week that I'm uh, excited to let you know about, so you do really want to be back uh, next week, too. Uh, we will be observing the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church, um, praying for and supporting uh, persecuted Christians around the world. And as part of that time of prayer, we have a special guest who will be coming, a dear sister in Christ who is originally from Syria, um, who will be sharing a little piece of her testimony as well as um, some guidance and how we can be praying for Syria as a nation, uh, going through a lot right now, as you know, as well as uh, praying for Christians who are increasingly uh, a dying minority, and unfortunately, I mean that literally, um, in Syria. And so she will help us to know how better 
to be able to pray and lift up our brothers and sisters overseas. And so please do come back uh, for that. That'll be a real treat and a blessing for us together. But for today, uh, in these next several minutes, um, we'll be looking at Galatians, continuing in our study of God's Word in the book of Galatians. We're at chapter 4 now, and let me pause and pray before we begin. Jesus, I exhale, um, and I wonder if that's how a lot of us feel, maybe holding our breath uh, throughout a long week, lots of different challenges, maybe even in in this service up till this point, still feeling like we're we're, uh, decompressing from things in life. But God, now we're asking that by your spirit, would you help us to be attentive to your word? There's something here that all of us need to hear. And that's not because of my personal wisdom or skill, all of which is lacking, but it's because we are hearing from the very words of God. So come and speak. Bless this time. Help us to hear. Help us to follow. Give us life with your words. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the daily, day-to-day trenches of adult life, There's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. Those were the words of novelist and English professor David Foster Wallace. He delivered those words in his now famous commencement speech at Kenyon College in 2005, so now some years ago. Wallace spoke and wrote about religious matters occasionally, sometimes profoundly. He attended church from time to time, but he himself didn't identify as a Christian. And yet, as you can hear, he spoke truly, you might say even Christianly, when he says things like that. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. Those are nearly the words that the Apostle Paul uses in our passage today, here in this part of his letter to the Galatian Christians. Paul is reminding the church that they now know the God of the Bible, But it wasn't always that way. They used to be steeped in the worship of idols as people that were simply doing what Galatian people in the ancient world, now called Turkey, would do, worshiping idols. And so Paul says in verse 8, formally, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. They had worshiped pagan gods who were not truly the true God. They were fake gods, counterfeit gods, not gods, as it were. So Paul asks, how is it that you're continuing to turn back to those weak and miserable forces, which is also another way of talking about idols, weak and miserable forces. The Greek word, the phrase there is something that could be translated elemental principles, the elements. Paul's talking about the elements. Now, I don't know if you remember much chemistry. If you're like me, even the word chemistry might give you a moment's PTSD. (laughs) Still recovering. 
You might remember the periodic table of elements, all those boxes and letters that sort of point us to the basic building blocks of all things, hydrogen and carbon and oxygen and all the rest. And maybe you might remember, maybe remember the word stoichiometry, which is, of course, built on the word stoichia. Guess what? That's the word that Paul uses here, the elements. What's he getting at there? Well, stoichia, the elements, basically refers to the way that the ancient people in their religious systems believed that the elements was all the basic stuff that all the visible world was made up of. The earth, fire, air, water, these were the stoichia, the elements, and it was believed that behind each of these elements were gods who controlled our lives. And so let's say you were a farmer with your crops, you would pray to the earth stoichia element, and you made sacrifices to the water stoichia elements, the gods, for rain, for good crops, for prosperity, and all the rest. And so therefore, by using this word here, Paul is referring to the worship of not gods, the gods of the world the gods that they had formerly worshipped. And he's saying then that these Galatian Christians are slipping back into idolatry even though they now know the true God and profess to be followers of Jesus. And you say, and they might have said, what do you mean turning back to idols? Are they worshipping Zeus and Diana and all the rest all over again? Well, no. They're worshipping, well, other kinds of God by observing Christian rituals and Jewish festivals and ceremonies, what Paul describes in verse 10 as these special days and months and seasons and years. And from the rest of the letter, as we've been studying it up till now, we know that he's also referring to the rite of circumcision and all these other religious rules that the Galatian Christians were being taught by false teachers were necessary to be followed in order to be loved by God. These rules and rituals that they needed to keep in order to be accepted by God. And so therefore, Paul is saying that their commitment to those things, their near, yes, religious commitment to doing things to make yourself right with God, to earn the love of God, what he calls works of righteousness, is actually no different, he says, from the pagan idol worship that you used to be engrossed in, in your former way of life. And so he says, how is it that you're turning back to these weak and miserable principles, these idols? And so already we're encountering a few things that we need to point out here. First, you don't have to bow to literal statues to be a worshiper of idols. The Galatians weren't bowing to literal statues, and Paul still said that they're turning back to idols. Our hearts are capable of a, a sort of spiritual kind of idolatry. Second, this is the case because idolatry is something that happens deep in our hearts. Our human souls are, are worshiping souls engines of love and adoration that we will plug into and attach to just about anything, 
Hence the idolatries of our hearts. And therefore, thirdly, even if you today are a professing Christian, as the Galatians were when Paul was writing them this letter, or even if you normally don't see yourself as a religious person at all, didn't grow up in church, I don't really see myself as an adherent of any one system of belief, Paul is telling us, the Bible is telling us, that we all, every one of us, are worshipers and indeed tend to have spiritual idols in our hearts. Okay, what does this mean? I'm going to look at a few things, unpack this passage a little bit, three things, and then we'll have Q&A afterwards as we usually like to do. Three things. One, the meaning of idolatry. Two, the effects of idolatry. And three, freedom from idolatry. First of all, let's look at this. The meaning of idolatry. How might we define this? Let's unpack it a little bit more. What is it anyway? Idolatry is worship. It's loving and worshiping anything besides God or anything more than God. It's what is the first and the highest priority in your life. And I'm not talking about the formal answer that you would write down if somebody asked you where your faith is or what your religion is. I'm talking about the functional, practical, real-life answer. You know, the answer that we could figure out by looking at your bank account. What's your highest priority? Or by your calendar. What's the most important thing to you? It's a little unnerving, isn't it, to think of it in those terms. Here's how Tim Keller, pastor up in New York and writer, wrote wonderfully about this topic of idolatry in his book, Counterfeit Gods, would recommend it to all of you. And here's how he defines this word idol. What is an idol? It's an extended thing I'll read to you, very helpful, so bear with me. What is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God, anything you seek to give that you seek to give you what only God can give. An idol, a counterfeit God, is anything so central, so essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would hardly feel worth living. An idol has such a controlling position in your heart that you can actually spend most of your passion and energy, your emotion and financial resources on it without a second thought. It can be family and children or career and making money or achievement and critical acclaim or saving face or social standing. It can be a romantic relationship, peer approval, competence, skill, security, comfortable circumstances, your beauty, your brains, a great political or social cause, your morality or virtue, or even success in Christian ministry. See, an idol is anything you look at and say in your heart of hearts, says Keller, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value. Then I'll feel significant and secure. There are many ways to describe that kind of relationship to something, but perhaps the best one is worship. Which, of course, is what David Foster Wallace said, right? In that opening quote that I mentioned to you. The worship of our hearts, the idols of our hearts. What is it for you? And maybe it's not clear right away. Maybe some questions to help sort of help you to see into your own heart 
might help you diagnose the idolatry within. So let me ask some of them to you. What's your greatest nightmare? What are you most fear or what are you most worried about? Oh, here's another one. What makes you really angry? I mean, what's really been ticking you off lately? What makes you just fly off the handle without you even being aware of it because of the way it pushes your buttons? Is it something maybe that you've been telling yourself, I have to have that or else? Or maybe it just makes you so mad because someone is blocking you from getting it. I must have it. What do you turn to to comfort yourself? especially when things go bad or really get rough. Or if you pray, what prayer, if God didn't give it to you or answer it, what prayer would make you want to just run away from God and give up on God? What if you failed at it or lost it, what would make you feel like a total loser and make you just want to just throw your hands up and give up on life? What is it that would make you happy, dear friends? I mean, like really, really happy. And where does your mind go when it's just sort of on screensaver? Just sort of sitting there? Where do you go where, when you don't have to go anywhere with your mind? How do you daydream? What fills your imagination? Sometimes these questions, or rather the answers to these questions, are things that can point us to or trace us back to the idols that might be deeply rooted into our hearts. Again, the things that have a stranglehold on our dreams, on our wishes, on our priorities. The things that we're giving a godlike status in our lives. Well, what are those things? What's in your heart? Well, you might call some of that a relationship idolatry. You know, where you tell yourself, this person, this person must be in my life in order for me to be somebody. It might be a child or maybe a significant other. It might be a spouse. Or maybe what you find in your hearts is something you might call approval idolatry. I don't feel significant unless other people say just affirming things about me. I need their verbal affirmation to feel like I'm somebody. Or maybe what you find in your heart is the idolatry of money or financial security. And maybe that's why you find yourself just devoting yourself so diligently to that one project. Or why it's hurting you so bad that you don't have as much as you wish you did. Maybe for you in your heart, what you struggle with is the idolatry of control, where the goal in life is just to eliminate all kinds of uncertainty. Right? Just get rid of all chaos in life and you just get mad when anyone starts to introduce a little bit more chaos that you can't control. Your idols are threatened. Your world is falling apart, you see. Maybe there's work idolatry or success idolatry working in your hearts. Maybe it's making a difference idolatry where you feel like you're only valuable if you're helping people or if people need you, whether at home or in the workplace. Maybe it's the idolatry of religious activity or, or maybe even morality where you look at the things that you do in church or maybe before God or maybe just the good resume, morally speaking, that you might have and you're saying, well, because I do all these things, therefore I'm worthy, therefore I'm significant, therefore I'm valuable. Some of us might struggle with the idolatry of physical beauty and body image. Some of us, it's comfort. Others, it's freedom and independence. For others, it's a political belief system. What is it for you? 
And are you coming to terms with these dynamics in your heart enough that you're starting to be able to say together with me, my name is Duke and I'm a recovering idolater? Are you able to begin to speak like that by God's grace? Because you're starting to be able to not only gain insight, but you're also growing in honesty about the things that are driving your heart. And speaking of me personally, I've been on this journey trying to understand these things in my life, teaching and reflecting on these things for really decades now. And and I'll tell you, even in preparation for this sermon, there was just a hint of discouragement recognizing that it's been a long road on some of these fronts, these things that I struggle with. Maybe you feel like you're almost faced with discouragement too. Am I ever going to change? Friends, God's grace is long. And his arm is not too short to save. He he, he keeps his promises. He's hanging in there. And he'll be there with you to the end. The good work that he began, he will carry on to completion until the day of Christ, even in the way that you are growing in the idols of your heart. And yet it's still true. I struggle with these things, as maybe perhaps you do. For me, the idolatry of achievement I'm an Enneagram 3, for some of you, if that means anything to you, where success, productivity, and all the rest, too often, for me, are markers of self-worth. The ways in which that actually disrupts and sometimes all too often drives the things that I do as a pastor in this church. The way in which I know that I also bow my knee, as it were, to the God of competence. Can we call it that? It's just the love of people regarding me as gifted or knowledgeable or even having it all together, which of course leads to sometimes holding together emotions that are icky and ugly and not really impressive inside so that I can keep an outward appearance uh, that it's at least, well, respectable, whatever that means. Or maybe ways in which my idolatry of competence sometimes gets in the way even of relationships in the workplace or at home. Where all too often my wife Paula will ask me a simple question and I'll snap back uh, because it's almost like I feel threatened. Or at least that God feels threatened within me. That idol, like you asked a question, don't you trust me? It doesn't have to be much. But the retaliation is quick. Because the idol is threatened. There are ways in which God has given us grace to see these things. Are you seeing these things in your life? The meaning of idolatry. Are you growing in it? Are you seeing it? But secondly, what are the effects of idolatry? What do we learn also from this passage? Not just what it is, but how it impacts us and those around us. This passage points us to the effect of idolatry, first of all, on yourself. See, Paul tells us about the bondage of idolatry. The idols of our hearts treat us like slaves. Did you hear Paul's language? Verse 9, do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? Verse 8, you were slaves. See, the idols of our heart, they control us because they are the most important thing to us. We bow our knees and we serve them like gods. And so our idols treat us as slave masters. 
that we have to serve even to the point of near insanity. Idolatry makes you do crazy things, even self-destructive things. You sacrifice yourself in a way that just doesn't even always make sense, whether if you serve yourself physically in pursuit of a God of success or emotionally in pursuit of a God of relationships. You see, so often it's actually a spiritually and emotionally suicidal attachment that we have. It's why it's true to say that idolatry has an addictive power that dehumanizes you. In that same commencement address, David Foster Wallace said this about his idea about worship and how all of us worship. He says this, if you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power, you will end up feeling weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Do you know that feeling? Isn't it miserable? Which is precisely the word that Paul uses here in this passage to describe the experience of idolatry, these weak and miserable gods, not gods. Because idolatry kills dehumanizes. And in fact, the Old Testament testifies to this again and again. We see this in Psalm 115 when the psalmist writes this, listen, their idols, speaking of the idol worshipers of the world, their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. These idols, they have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see, they have ears but cannot hear, they have noses but cannot smell, they have hands but cannot feel, feet but cannot walk, nor can they utter a sound with their throats. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. Do you hear that? We become whatever we most trust in. We become like whatever we most trust in. So if you worship idols, you become like them. Having a mouth but not being able to speak, having eyes but unable to hear, having hands but unable to feel, having the appearance of life but dead. Idolatry is enslaving, addictive. But there's also an effect of idolatry, not just on ourselves, but on others. And what Paul tells us is that this idolatry creates towards other people contempt and enmity. He says this in verse 12. He said, look, way back when we used to get along, you used to love me. So in fact, verse 12, you did me no wrong. Verse 13, as you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. We don't know what that illness is. Some speculate it might have been some kind of an eye disease that was debilitating, and the Galatian Christians really cared for Paul in his sickness. 
And even though my illness was a trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. Where then is your blessing of me now? I can testify that if you could have done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Have I now become your enemy by telling you the truth? You see, they used to be dear friends, even family of Paul. And now because of the idolatry of their hearts, they've begun to show contempt for him, a word that Paul uses there. They're starting to treat him like an enemy. Why? Because he's threatening their idols. He's blocking their false worship. This word contempt, of course, it doesn't just mean to despise. It means to make least esteemed, to treat as nothing. You see, when we're in pursuit of our idols, we start to treat people around us as dispensable, as as people that are fine to be trampled upon, whatever it takes for me to get this. Some of you know this by seeing the patterns of addiction that you see around you. Everyone else becomes expendable in pursuit of that one thing. Spiritual idolatry is no different. The way that we kill and crush and hurt and wound and backbite and harshly treat those around us in order to get our not God. And so Psalm 106 sheds some insight here when it says of, again, idol worshipers around the nation of Israel, they sacrificed their sons and their daughters to false gods. They shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was desecrated by their blood. We may not any longer see literal blood sacrifice of children and other people in pursuit of idolatry, but dear friends, we still do absolutely see bloodless sacrifice of children in pursuit of idolatry, of independence, of success of power, and not just of children, but of other family members and friends, and especially the vulnerable and the poor. And in fact, this trampling upon of those around us, it doesn't stop just interpersonally. It extends far beyond to those around us. Caitlin Scheiss, a a thoughtful writer and seminary student in Dallas, once made this observation. There's a reason the prophets so consistently connect idolatry and social injustice. Because in the end, idols will always demand things of you that you can only give them by exploiting other people. Do you notice who you're trampling on? Or the weak and marginalized? Or the vulnerable around you? whom you're just discarding like a commodity or a hurdle to overcome in pursuit of that thing that you need, that you must have, your comforts, your larger bank account, your sense of power and status. What has it been for you? Who have you been trampling on? Who's been on your altar of sacrifice in your worship of idols? And most of all, of course, we treat God like this with this sort of contempt. Pursuing these things and treating him like he's dead, discardable, treating him like an enemy. You see, of course, the worst of all impacts and effects of our false worship is that we're not worshiping the true God, offending him, going to other sources for happiness and meaning and joy and glory and salvation. 
when God alone can give us those things. And it's miserable. It's just miserable. Again, this word that Paul uses in verse 9, he also puts it this way in verse 15. Where then is your blessing of me now? Which can be translated also, what has happened to all your joy? Do you today maybe feel enslaved by fears, concerns, must-haves? Maybe it's giving you a joyless life. Maybe you're a follower of Jesus and now you barely even recognize who you are before God because your heart is just chock full of idols. Do you feel that way? Like a slave? Do you want freedom? The good news is there is freedom. Let's end here quickly. The freedom from idolatry that God offers us. Freedom from idolatry it comes from turning our gaze away from these idols to the true God of gods. To the God who gives us life, to the God who restores our joy. How do we find freedom? First, it means removing the idols of our hearts to recognize them for what they are, to work through some of the questions I gave you and to recognize them. To not just analyze them, but to actually weep and mourn over them in repentance. See, it's not just something to know about. It's something to grieve over because we're spitting on the face of God in worshiping other things that are offering false promises that we believe day in and day out. And of course, to recognize the idols of our hearts, you really need to do it in community. You really need other people that can speak the truth to you and tell you about it. Someone who will anguish with you for your growth, as Paul says in verse 19, where he is laboring with pains of of childbirth, so longing for them to grow in Christ. You need people like that who aren't afraid to confront you, who's willing to do it humbly and lovingly, even if you're going to start momentarily, hopefully, start to treat them like an enemy, right? Because to name that idol, it's threatening. To expose those things before you, you might not like it. It's not comfortable. Sometimes it's even painful. It might cut, but dear friends, some wounds are needed for healing. Some things we need for life. And maybe this might be me a means for restoring your hearts, your lives to our true Savior, Jesus. Will you dare to take a look, a long, good look at the idols of your heart? But then secondly, and more importantly, will we fill our hearts with a new vision of the God that Jesus promises to be for you? Will you see Jesus? We have in verse 9 in this passage a tiny little surprise, a little clue that's almost easy to miss, but I think it's one of the most powerful features of this entire passage. Paul is talking about how the Galatian Christians once didn't know God, and then in verse 9 he transitions to saying, but then you did come to know God, but now that you know God, he says, but then he catches himself, and he interrupts himself. He says this, but now that you know God, or rather are known by God. Almost as if to make sure that the Galatian Christians in this moment of struggling with idolatry come to know 
that what ultimately they're being encountered by in God is not just a, a God that's a little bit better than the idols of this world, but a God who's unlike any other God that we can possibly imagine. A God of grace, a God of love, a God who isn't only known by us because of our knowledge and pursuit of him, but rather the God who took the first step that he might know us. The God who made covenant and promise with us by his own initiative. A God whose love for you isn't dependent upon your grip on him, but rather his grip on you. A God who is not waiting around for you simply to change your own heart, to know that you love him, but rather a God who steps in and says, here's my love for you. A God who loves you so. A God of grace as so. This is the God that changes our hearts. This is the God that that woos us near to himself. This is a God who gave his own son to become like you and me. Who, Who did us no wrong, though we treated him like an enemy. So threatening was he when he told us the truth about our hearts. Who welcomed us though we welcomed him, well, conditionally. A Savior who didn't just uh, sort of theoretically or metaphorically tear his eyes out and given them to us, but rather he tore his soul to shreds to give himself to us in love, dying for our sins and our idolatry, who was treated like an enemy for us, even by his own father, suffering not just the pains of childbirth, but the pains of hell itself. That he would die in order to give us life, so that we who live lives of enslaved dehumanization might finally be free and might finally find life that is true life. This is the God of the Bible who comes near to you and says, worship me. Worship me, a fountain of life. And so the question before us is, do you see this Jesus? See, friends, it's not just about the things you know about him. The question is, do you have a a sight of his beauty that captivates your heart? Is your imagination filled with him? In other words... Do you not just know of him? Do you worship him? Because that's what we're talking about, isn't it? The worship of our hearts. Because you cannot dismantle idolatry with just a few sort of words and tricks in a bag. You need a greater worship, a new worship, one that has been overturned by the very love and beauty of Christ himself. Do you worship him? Some of us serve Jesus, but don't yet know how to really worship him. Have you seen his beauty? Have you seen his love? Have you given yourself space and time to gaze at him in this way? To let your soul savor him? To see what Samuel Rutherford, the old Puritan, described as the loveliness of Jesus. Do you even know to talk about Christ in that way? Do you speak of his loveliness as you have seen it in the gospel? So, dear friends, Christ is merciful to us in showing us the not-gods of our heart. But the big question is, do you see 
the true God, the God of grace, the God of love, the God of forgiveness, the God of life, who comes near, who gives himself to you in Christ and brings you on a new adventure of worship. Because, dear friends, everyone worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. What's your choice today? Let's pray. We ask that you would be kind to us. O oh Lord, God of grace, God of beauty, God of irresistible joy, come, change our hearts, open our eyes to see you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and let's sing.